0: Brought to you by Charity Mobile, the phone company that shares your values. More information is available at CharityMobile.com. During Lent, I intend to continue my examination of modernism in the Church, where it came from, the way the popes and hierarchy responded to the rise of these errors in the Church in the decades leading up to the Council, and what modernism really means in a concrete sense for understanding our times in the Church. While I am planning another short biography on one of the influential fathers of modernism for the near future, today I have for you an address given by Pope Pius XII in the early 1950s that explains the changing world and how the logic of new ideas in the world have found their way into the Church and why the faithful must be on our guard about these things. I think you'll find this useful to understanding how the Church took a worldly turn a few years after Pius XII gave this address. La Familia, radio message on the occasion of Family Day, given by Pope Pius XII in March of 1952. The family is the cradle of the birth and development of a new life, which needs to be cared for and nurtured lest it perish. This right and fundamental duty is given and imposed immediately by God upon parents. The content and end of education in the natural order is the development of the child to become a complete man. The content and end of Christian education is the formation of a new human being, reborn in baptism, as a perfect Christian. This obligation, which was always the custom and pride of Christian families, is solemnly enshrined in Canon 1113 of the Code of Canon Law, which reads, Parents are under a grave obligation to see to the religious and moral education of their children, as well as to the physical and civic training as far as they can and moreover to provide for the temporal well-being the most pressing questions on this vast subject have been clarified on several occasions by our predecessors and by us ourselves therefore we now propose to you not to repeat what has already been amply explained but rather to draw attention to an element which although the basis and fulcrum of education especially a christian one Instead, seems to some, at first glance, almost alien to it. That is, we would like to speak about what is most profound and intrinsic to man, his conscience. We are obliged to you by the fact that some currents of modern thought are beginning to alter its concept and impugn its value. We will treat, therefore, conscience as the object of education. Conscience is like the most intimate and secret core of man. There he takes refuge with his spiritual faculties in absolute solitude. Alone with himself, or rather alone with God, with whose voice conscience resounds, and with himself. There he determines himself for good or for evil. There he chooses between the path of victory and that of defeat. Even if he wanted to, man would never succeed in getting rid of it. With that conscience, which either approves or condemns, he will travel the whole journey of life. And equally with that truthful and incorruptible witness, he will present himself at the judgment of God, conscience is therefore to speak of it an image as is it is worthy a sanctuary at whose threshold all must stop even if it is a boy the father and mother only the priest enters there as curator of souls and as minister of the sacrament of penance neither for this reason does conscience cease to be a jealous sanctuary whose secrecy god himself once guarded with the seal of the most sacred silence in what sense then can one speak about the education of conscience it is necessary to turn again to some fundamental concepts of Catholic doctrine in order to duly understand that what conscience can and should be educated. The divine Savior has brought to man, ignorant and weak, his truth and his grace, truth to indicate for him the path that leads to his end, grace to confer upon him the strength to be able to reach it. To follow this path means in practice accepting the will and the commandments of Christ and conforming one's life to them. That is, the individual acts, internal and external, which the free human will chooses and settles upon. Now what is the spiritual faculty, which in specific cases points out the self-same will, so that it may choose and determine the actions that are in accordance with the divine will, if not conscience? It is therefore a faithful echo, a clear reflection of the divine rule for human actions, Thus, expressions such as the judgment of the Christian conscience, or else to judge according to the Christian conscience, have this meaning. The rule for the ultimate and personal decision for a moral action must be taken from the word and from the will of Christ. He is, in fact, the way, the truth, and the life, not only for all men taken together, but for each man individually. It is such for the mature man. It is such for the child and the young person. For this, it follows that forming the Christian conscience of a child or a young person consists, first of all, in enlightening their minds about the will of Christ, His law, His way, and also in acting on their souls, in so far as can be done from outside, similar to persuading them to the free and constant execution of the divine will. This is the greatest task of education. But where shall the educator and the educated find the Christian moral law, concretely and with facility and certainty? In the law of the Creator, engraved on the heart of each one, and in revelation, that is, in the entirety of the truths and precepts taught by the Divine Master, both the law written in the heart, that is, the natural law, as well as the truths and precepts of supernatural revelation, which Jesus the Redeemer entrusted, as the moral treasure of humanity, into the hands of his Church, so that she may preach them to all creatures, explaining them and transmitting them, intact and free of all contamination and error, from generation to generation. Against this doctrine uncontested for long ages, there now arises difficulties and objections that must be clarified. As for dogmatic doctrine, so also for the Catholic moral order. A radical revision is sought to be instituted in order to deduce a new judgment of it. The first step, or to say it better, the first blow against the edifice of Christian moral norms would be that of separating them, as is intended, from the constrictive and oppressive vigilance of the authority of the Church, so that freed from the sophistical subtleties of the causistic method, morality is restored to its original form and returned to simply the intelligence and determination of the individual conscience. Everyone sees what disastrous consequences this would lead to, such a devastation of the very foundation of education. Without pointing out the manifest incompetence and immaturity of judgment of those who hold similar opinions, it will be of use to us to explore the central flaw of this new morality. In leaving every ethical criterion to the individual conscience, it jealously closes in on itself and having been made the absolute arbiter of its own determinations, far from making the way easier for it, the way it would divert it from the high road, which is Christ. The divine redeemer has entrusted his revelation of which moral obligations form an essential part of course not to individual men but rather to his church through which he has given the mission to lead them to embrace that sacred deposit with fidelity similarly divine assistance ordained to preserve revelation from errors and from def- deformations was promised to the church and not to individuals providence also knowing this because the church as a living organism can thus securely and easily both illuminate and even expound upon moral truths, as well as apply them to the variable conditions of the place and time, while maintaining their substance intact. One may think, for example, about the social doctrine of the Church, which, born to respond to new necessities, in the end is nothing but the application of the perennial Christian morality to the present economic and social circumstances. How is it, therefore, possible to reconcile the providential instruction of the Savior, who committed the guardianship over the Christian moral patrimony of the Church with a kind of individualistic autonomy of conscience. This stolen from its natural climate can only produce poisonous fruit, which we will recognize, only compare them with some characteristics of the traditional conduct in Christian perfection, whose excellence is proven by the incomparable work of the saints. The new morality affirms that the Church, instead of fostering the law of human liberty and of love, and of demanding of you that dynamics which is worthy of the moral life, instead bases itself almost exclusively, and with excessive rigidity, on the firmness and the intransigence of Christian moral laws, frequently resorting to the terms, you are obliged, it is not licit, which is too much of an error of degrading pedantry. Now, on the contrary, the Church desires and manifests this clearly in forming consciences, that the Christian becomes introduced to the infinite riches of the faith and of grace in a persuasive manner, in such a way that they feel inclined to penetrate them deeply. The Church, however, cannot refrain from admonishing the faithful that these riches can be neither acquired nor conserved, except at the cost of concrete moral obligations. A different approach would end up neglecting a chief principle, with Jesus, her Lord and Master, always insisted upon for he taught that is not enough to say, Lord, Lord, to enter the kingdom of heaven, but one must do the will of the heavenly Father. He spoke of the narrow gate and the narrow road that leads to life, and added, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able. He has established the observance of the commandments as the touchstone and the distinctive sign of love for himself, Christ. Like unto the rich young man who asks him, he says, If you would enter life, keep the commandments, and to the new one, which ones? He answers, Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He sets a requirement for those who want to imitate him, to renounce him, and to take up his cross every day. He demands that a man be ready to leave behind, for the sake of him and his mission, whatever he has most dear, such as his father, his mother, and his own children, even unto his last possession, his own life. Since he adds, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that can do nothing more. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Thus spake Jesus Christ, the divine pedagogue, who certainly knows better than men how to penetrate souls, and to draw them to his love with the infinite perfections of his heart, full of goodness and love. And did perhaps the apostle of the Gentiles, St. Paul, preach otherwise? With his vehement voice of persuasion, revealing the mysterious allure of the supernatural world, he opened up the grandeur and splendor of the Christian faith, the riches, the power, the blessing, the happiness contained with it, offering them to souls as the worthy goal of Christian liberty and as the irresistible end of pure impulses of love. But it is no less true that his admonitions are just as many, such as this one, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and that from his pen flowed high moral precepts addressed to all the faithful, whether they are of ordinary intelligence, or rather souls of high sensitivity. Taking, therefore, the words of Christ and of the Apostle as the strict rule, should not one say that the Church of today is rather inclined more to indulgence than to severity. It so happens that the accusation of oppressive rigidity made against the Church by the new morality, in reality, attacks in the first place the adorable person of Christ himself conscience therefore of the right and duty of the holy apostolic see to intervene when it be necessary authoritatively in moral questions we in the address of october 29th last year proposed to illumine consciousness about the problems of conjugal life with the same authority we declare today to educators and to the same youth the divine commandment of purity of soul and of body also applies without diminishment to today's youth They, too, have the moral obligation, with the help of grace, the possibility of keeping themselves pure. Therefore, we reject as erroneous the claim of those who consider failings inevitable in the years of puberty, considered by them of no great import, as if they were not a great fault, because ordinarily, they add, passion takes away the liberty necessary so that an act is morally imputable. On the contrary, it is a fitting and wise rule that the educator, by not neglecting to impress upon the young the noble qualities of purity, so as to induce them to love it and desire it for its own sake. Nonetheless, he should clearly inculcate the commandment as it stands, in all its gravity and seriousness as a divine ordinance. He will thus urge the young to avoid near occasions of sin. He will comfort them in the struggle of which he shall not hide the hardness, He will induce them to embrace courageously that sacrifice which virtue demands and he will exhort them to persevere and not to fall into the danger of disarming themselves from the beginning and of succumbing without resistance to perverse habits even more than in the field of private conduct there are many today who would like to exclude the domain of the moral law from public life economic and social from the action of public authorities internally and externally in peace and in war as if god had nothing to say here at least nothing definitive The emancipation from morality of external human activities such as science, politics, art, morality gets justified at times on philosophical grounds by the autonomy that is under their jurisdiction in their field of governing themselves exclusively according to their own laws, although it is recognized that these ordinarily coincide with those morals. And one may go to the example of art, for which not only is any dependency denied, but also any relationship with morality, by saying, art is just art, and not morality or anything else. Based upon, therefore, only the laws of aesthetics, which, however, if they are truly such, will not bend to serve concupiscence. In a similar manner, it is said that politics and economics do not need to take advice from other sciences, and therefore from ethics, but guided by their true laws, they are themselves good and just. It is as seen a subtle way to steal conscience from the empire of moral laws. In truth, one cannot deny that such autonomies are just, far as they express the method proper to each activity and the boundaries that separate their different forms on theoretical grounds but the separation of methods should not mean that the scientist the artist the politician are free of moral solicitudes in the exercise of their activities especially if these ones have immediate repercussions in the fields of ethics such as art politics and economics the clear and theoretical separation does not make sense in life, which is always a synthesis, since the sole subject of any kind of activity is the same man, whose free and conscious acts cannot escape moral evaluation. By continuing to observe the problem with an ample and practical view, which is sometimes lacking even for distinguished philosophers, such distinctions and autonomies are times for fallen human nature to represent how the laws of art, politics, or economics, that which can instead prove to be convenient for concupiscence, selfishness, and greed. Thus the theoretical autonomy from morality becomes, in practice, rebellion against morality, and that harmony which is innate to the sciences and the arts is also broken, which the philosopher of that school acutely observes, but they call it random, while it is instead essential if considered by the subject, who is man, and by his creator, who is God. Therefore our predecessors and we ourselves, in the turmoil of the recent conflict and the troubled affairs of the post-conflict period, We have not ceased to insist on the principle that the order willed by God embraces the whole of life, not excluding public life in all its manifestations, persuaded that in this there is no restriction of human freedom, nor in any interference in the competence of the state, but rather a guarantee against errors and abuses against which Christian morality, if correctly applied, can protect these truths must be taught to the young and inculcated in their consciences by those who in the family or in the school have the obligation to attend to their education thus laying the seeds of a better future that's what we intend to tell you now beloved sons and daughters who are listening to us and in telling this to you we have not hidden the anxiety that presses upon our heart for this formidable problem which touches the present and the future of the world in the eternal destiny of many souls How much comfort it would give us to be certain that you share this, our anxiety for the Christian education of youth. Educate the consciences of your children with persistent and persevering care. Educate them to the fear as to the love of God. Educate them to the truth. But first be true yourselves, and banish from the work of education whatever is not honest or true. Impress upon the consciences of young people the genuine concept of freedom, real freedom, worthy and proper to a creature made in the image of God, and disillusion and debauchery is quite another thing. Whereas suitability for the good is proven, in that to be resolved on its own, to want it and to do it, it is the mastery over one's own faculties, over instinct, over events. Educate them to pray and to draw upon the sources of penance of the most holy Eucharist, that which nature cannot give, the strength not to fall, the strength to rise again, They already sense from the young that without the help of these supernatural forces, they would not succeed in being either good Christians or simply honest men, whose legacy is a serene life. But thus prepared, they will also be able to inspire to the highest excellence that will be able to give themselves over to it, that is, to the great task and relief, the fulfillment of which will be their merit, to make Christ present in their lives. To achieve this end, we urge all our beloved sons and daughters of the great human family to be closely united with each other, United in the defense of truth, for the spreading of Christ's kingdom upon the earth. Every division is banished, any dissent is removed. Make sacrifices generously, whatever the cost, for the greater good, for the supreme ideal, every particular view, every subjective preference. If evil greed would summon you elsewhere, may your Christian conscience win every test, so that the enemy of God among you may not deride you the vigor of healthy education is proven in its fruitfulness for all peoples who fear for the future of their youth thus shall the lord pour out upon you and upon your families the abundance of his graces and pledge of which we impart to you with paternal affection the apostolic blessing given in rome on the twenty-third of march nineteen fifty two by pope pius XII. everything the holy pontiff said there was correct as far as i can tell The new morality has worked its way into the church, and it is now the ruling methodology and theology of the church in our time, with the consequences, plain to see for anyone, with eyes to see. But how do we correct this turn? Lent is a good time to begin by offering our Lenten sacrifices for our sins and the sins of the clergy, and for the correction of modern errors. Let me know in the comments what you thought about Pius XII's speech here, and what can be done to address what he is talking about in a very real way. I hope your Lenten journey is fruitful this year. And remember to pray for the church daily during the season. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.